Welcome to Rise to Offend, a podcast that explores people who rose to offend society and their legacy today. I'm your host, Petra Speich, and this week we tell you the tale of Peter Steele. Born Petrus Thomas Ratazik on July 4th, 1962. At 6 feet 7 inches tall, he would become a towering heavy metal icon, fronting gothic metal pioneers type O negative, and also be seen by many as the class clown of heavy metal icons during the 1990s. His constant sarcasm in interviews and sharp, edgy humor would keep him in controversy throughout his career, but behind the exterior, depression, love, loss, and eventual addiction would push through the facade. Actually, basically a shy person, believe it or not. You know, this, this, this whole... The stand-up comedy routine is really just an act because I'm just a big little boy. I'm just a, just a little boy in a big body. I ha- have always gotten stage fright. I've never liked to speak publicly. And I found that um, some wine or vodka gave me some liquid courage. A couple of sips of wine before a show turned into a couple of bottles. And my record was tw- 12 bottles of wine. I drank four before the show, four during the show, and four after the show. And I did not fall down. I just stayed up and annoyed the fuck out of everybody. <laughs> you never loved me! And vomiting on people, you know, pissing in somebody's bunk. Uh, the things you do. I, I think that that the rest of my body actually gave up on, on, on my brain and just learned to do things themselves. Like now when I play bass, well, not that I ever could, but when I try to play bass, I actually have to think about the next part. Because my, my hands gave up on my brain a long time ago. They're like, fuck, fuck, man, fuck beat. You, 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 you take the neck, I'll take the pick, all right? And let's go. So I've played shows and done things and done a lot of stupid things during blackouts and, you know, being drunk and stuff like that that I regret. I, I said a lot of stuff. I, I did a lot of things. I mean, not like malice. And I mean... Not like, you know, kicking the shit out of people, but just being in, inconsiderate. And now being sober and being around, you know, a lot of drunk people, uh, it's kind of embarrassing that that's, that's what, what I was like. You know, I'm an, I'm an addict. You know, I can't moderate. There is no such thing as just one drink for me. I just can't have a glass of wine before going on stage and that's it. Now, I need the whole vineyard. And I'm joined, guys, with uh, Brandon Guchan and Jocelyn Sharp. Peter Steele was born in Red Hook, Brooklyn. He is the youngest in a family of six, five sisters. Father and mother were very, very much in love. His father did end up going to serve in World War II, came back with an honorable discharge, and was a showed a very strong work ethic to Peter early on. We, we've actually um, uh, discovered something very, very quite interesting lately within this band, that encompasses string, quantum, and chaos theory. When we we can't decide what to do, we flip a coin. Now, Red Hook, Brooklyn, in the 90s, a lot of people might know, that is the center of the uh, the crack e- epidemic in America. Back in, in, in the 60s, it wasn't like that. So as uh, Peter was growing up, it was a very much working-class environment. It was very much a an affluent neighborhood of a lot of different cultures, of Italian, Jewish, Polish, things like that. When he was about one and one and a half years old, he, they moved to uh, an area of New York called Midwood. But I know morons who are blessed with complete arrogance and confidence. Mm-hmm. And that persona gets them through everything because people just love them 
because they think who they are. So I think if, if you want something out of life, you have to go and get it yourself because no one's going to give it to you. When you are growing up with five sisters, what do you think uh, What do you think is some of the positive things of that? Growing up with five sisters? Yes. I'm sure they tortured the shit out of him. So I'm trying to wonder <laughs> yeah. if there's any kind of positives in that. I mean, the only positive would come when you're like an adult and you can speak to women better. But other than that, like you probably got dressed up in dresses and forced to wear makeup and pretty much had to do everything that the, your sisters because it's five against one what are you gonna do now he is the baby though he's the youngest so you don't think they were a little more like herring and coddling no you still think they were kind of torturous i think they were probably carrying and coddling until he wasn't cute anymore do you want to know a secret i do <laughs> do you promise so josh, to so josh said that you sleep holding your penis is that true that's the only thing valuable i have <laughs> why is it that it seems that Every interview you read with Tybo, there has to be something about your penis. Why do you think it's such a big deal, Peter? Is, why is it such a big deal? Uh-huh. Well, uh, it's going to be a long story. Tell me. It's I got be time. It's hard to tell. <laughs> the show's over. Turn the f***ing camera off. Now, Ralph, hey. Don't make me get up, man. He was diagnosed with something known as flat-footed. So they would put braces on your legs back back in those days. Um, so Like Forrest Gump braces? Yes. So he would have these braces on his legs as he started going to elementary and like almost till middle school. So he was very insecure and shy about that. He would do a lot of things to hide that. But he did get bullied um, excessively about these braces on his legs because of how tall he was for his age. All I can say to, to the youth today is is have faith that that when bad things happen to you that they're, they're, I believe in, in an afterlife that it's it's better to suffer here on earth than what awaits you so that's why I pray for pain and I get it he had a love of music early on uh, his fan, favorite vinyl when he was a kid was actually spooky sounds from the Disney Disney show so he would have like this spooky sounds vinyl that would um, play all the time so he fell in love with that Halloween-esque type of thing from his sister's record collection. And as he's growing over, his sisters would get more and more records, more of the rock-orientated stuff, the King Crimson, the Kiss, you know, Sabbath, all these things. Sabbath was probably his biggest influence in a lot of ways, and that was introduced to him by his sister. Well, because everyone needs a scapegoat. And, uh, you think you are a scapegoat? Apparently. And... I'm the type of person who speaks my mind. I'm not afraid of the consequences. Unfortunately, the people who write such things do not have the balls to come and say them to my face, and I wish they would, because I have something for them. I really don't care what people think of me, because I really don't care about anyone else but myself. In, uh the area of New York, he did go to Catholic school. He was grown up and his whole family was raised Catholic. So with, with Catholicism, that would kind of mold his personality with his insecurities and a lot of his things. He, he was a very, very shy person. You know, he never embraced his height, really. He always felt awkward that he couldn't hide and things like that. So he was always a very, very shy personality. But he also had learned at a very young age, like a comedian, that if you're funny... It gets you out of any situation. So he would hide his nervousness, his anxiousness, all these things by telling jokes. Stand up straight. Stop again. Show this back. Sound off. Angry. 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 
What do you guys think about that when you're learning that at an early age? I think that that's no. I think it's normal for. I mean, we know that story very well. Most comics have a story very similar to that. If you don't fit in, there's two things that happen. You can either go inside yourself, or you create a defense mechanism. And for most of that, us, that's humor. And and he was probably extremely funny because it came from a place of having to compensate for people not taking you seriously on your looks, or because he had a you know what probably most considered a disability at the time. You're right about that though, because when you're when you're some gangly freak, which is, I'm sure, was what he looked like as a kid. You know, here's, I mean, could you imagine? How, how tall was Peter Steele? How tall did he end he was up six, being? 6'8". So how tall do you think he was in, like, middle school? He's probably, uh, like, 6'2", 6'3". Yeah, at least, at least. Just towering all over everybody? I mean, dude, you have to have a couple of jokes prepared to say out loud before someone else makes those jokes against you. So that's your way of taking the power back. you got to be funny when you look like that. Well, Brooklyn was established in the year 1664 by Dutch settlers. I mean, what do you want to tell you about Brooklyn? What? A lot of a lot of great bands came out of Brooklyn. One of them, as you mentioned before, Biohazard Life of Agony. I know Evan for a really long time. My former band, Carnivore, Evan used to uh, be my bass tech. And uh, in our spare time, we used to hang out by uh, Lamore, which is not too far from here. And I had another crazy car, even before the one I have now. And what we would do for fun is, uh, it was like a lot of abandoned vehicles uh, on this this one strip right around the block from the club. So uh, Evan's job was to open up the doors on these cars, and I was to go as fast as possible on my car and rip the doors off, and then just rock and soccer robots. Sounds like a good time. Yeah, it was. It was great. Young and stupid. Now I'm old and stupid. <laughs> he was tall. He, wasn't in, in, he didn't see himself as an intimidating factor. To others, they were obviously intimidated because as a tall person, you don't, see yourself as a tall person. That makes sense? Yeah, and then that'll that'll create, because that happens with bullies, the other bully alpha males, quote-unquote, will look at him and see his size and stature and probably bullied him harder because they're trying to establish dominance and there's an intimidation factor there. You know what I mean? Like, so some people will often bully people that are outside of the spectrum of inferior to them in their head because they're intimidated by them and they want to establish dominance early. Yeah, they want, they just don't want this uh, six-foot-four freak to beat the hell out of them. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? so, they're but, like, but I still want <laughs> to make sure i'm in control right i'm the bully here not you okay yeah. how, how some people go through life um making other people's lives um miserable and if if you're naive you know you you could trick anybody you know and uh so you know tripping a blind man is very easy to do so when he's 10 years old in midwood this is where he he meets josh silver josh silver the keyboard is for typo negative uh, future keyboardists, obviously. So, um, and he also meets up with John Campos at ten years old. So they all went to the same Catholic school. They all lived in the same neighborhood, and they were all into music. So they would start learning with acoustic guitars. Peter did learn guitar first, and then Josh as well would learn keyboards because Josh, you know, he was he was forced to learn piano as a kid. Um, and then John Campos, also a very good guitar player. So what they would do is that they would start, they started a, uh, a band that was originally called, it had a couple names, but the one that stood out to me was Hot Ice, right? <laughs> so they had, there's a 10, 11 year old sitting in the back. <laughs> Just like cold fire. <laughs> I think what, what children are, are exposed to uh, through, through the media and how te- technology is taken over, like I, 
when I was a kid, we we play street hockey, we we play football, basketball, you know, uh, throw a ball around it after school, something, you know. Now kids, uh, I mean, they, they they got the TV on, they got headphones on, and they're doing something on the computer or it's with with some game. I read some article recently that like ninety percent of third graders can't read at a long time. I guess in in essence, when when I do have children, I'm going to have a, a lot of explaining to do about my behavior, and and my answer is going to be, well, learn from my mistakes. You know, yeah. that's that's what a parent is for, I believe. And uh, of course, as you know, the best parents have no children. You know, they could tell other people how to raise their kids, but oh, you should do that. So Hot Ice would actually, uh, you know, and they're, like I said, in the middle school area. They're not even teenagers yet. Um, they would play churches. They would play, they would play at lunches of high schools. They would get booked to go play while people were eating lunch. So they would play cover songs. They were simply a cover band all the way hot ice so by doing that it just gave them kind of a, a love and a passion now keep in mind that peter Steele hated to be on stage he hated to be the center of attention he hated towering over people he yeah, had, he, he already was a center of attention he was born that way right you could find him from across the room how is like he's doing everything he can to hide yeah he had extreme anxiety with all that but he always found this passion and love for music it kind of shows the fans I take you for granted. So that's why, you know, I don't cut my hair. I attempt to look the same without facial hair, long hair, as I did 20 years ago. If you want to diverge from that fucking image, you know what? You're jerking off your own fans. You know, because without our fans, we are nothing. I mean that. I'm not, I'm not putting down Metallica. I hate to use them as an example, but... I, I was kind of disappointed when, like, they felt that they were so cool that they could cut their hair off. You know, like, we don't have to try anymore. No. Me having long hair for 30 fucking years means I am still going to... Con- this is a sign of my faith in, in our fans. Once you change your image, you cut your hair off, you want to grow beards or... Spice through your nose. You know what? You're just disappointing your fans. One of the things that uh, he recalls doing is that one time when they were playing at a church, him, John Campos, and Josh Silver in Hot Ice, they were playing cover songs, and they actually played Paranoid by uh, Black Sabbath in the church, you know, acoustically, and nobody seemed to notice. So he he always had this way of doing things and a humor. It was almost like a rebellion, like, a rebellious humor. Yeah. He he always this is this is something that it comes. It was on. rebelling against people when they didn't even get the joke. There's something about being a smartass when the people that you're being a smartass to aren't uh, they're not understanding it. You know what I mean? It's you just feel empowered by that. He's the OG troll. Yes. He was like that's like what trolling was before trolling before the internet. People were trolling in real life. And he was getting the enjoyment out of it. And people like that are scary to be like, that's scary. They're just intimidating to be around because emotionally you don't know if they're being sincere or not ever. Cause they don't need you to know. Cause the joke is just for them. And he used to go online to keep track of me, you know, pretty much. And he actually saw this thing and sent the cops to my house to find out if I was dead or not. So I have a very strange and interesting life. I have to tell you, <laughs> um, like, you know, waking up, you know, and there's cops at the door. And they were going to kick the door in if, if I didn't get up because they had heard that I was dead. And the judge wanted to know if, if like, what had happened because he saw this. And then he called me into court and he asked me if I felt it was funny. 
When you're all around people like Peter Steele, you're probably asking yourself, well, you were probably asking yourself constantly, are you fucking with me? And that's what it is, like constantly. Are you, are you fucking with me? He always did things to get in trouble. He always did things to lose control and lose power, even as a kid, to be like, all right, you have to stop me because I'm just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing until you stop me. And he would do that his whole life, his whole career even, is that he just would push that edge until it got to such an uncomfortable point that someone gave up on him or quit on him. The thing that the system could have ever have done was to send me to jail. Because what, do you, what else do you have to do with your time but to speak to other criminals, to learn how to rob houses and rob cars and do all this other shit? That's the worst thing. And now, I mean, they should have killed me. They have unleashed me upon the world. Big mistake. The worst thing society could have ever have done was to send me to jail. Because now I've just learned to become a better criminal. That was something that he, he did early on. So he was always testing boundaries with his anxiety, but he was always pushing that button. And that was part of his personality. That's just self-sabotage. I mean, that's yes. what it ends up manifesting into. Guys, yo, man. Fucking hippies. Pot smoking hippies. Most significant moments are actually <laughs> rehearsing. Yeah. You know, um... Because these guys are a lot of fun, and uh, I got to scream my head off for, you know, four hours straight, and, you know, mm-hmm. laughing a lot and stuff like that, you know, took, took my mind off of some of the other things that are going on. So, by 1978, John Campos, Josh Silver, and Peter, they, they learned something about amps. They had to, to plug in their gear, and this is when Peter stopped playing the guitar. He switched over to the bass guitar. Geezer Butler from Black Sabbath was a huge he was a huge fan of that, and he learned a lot from him and Paul McCartney because he was a huge Beatles fan as well. So at this point in 1978, when they realized Hot Ice wasn't the way to go, so they changed their name of their band to Northern Lights. I'm doing that as a fucking favor because you don't know who I know. All right? I'm doing that as a favor. Listen to him with asthma over here. <laughs> well, you have a fucking hairball? Hippie. It's like fucking King Kong Bundy over here. <laughs> Martin Luther King Kong. <laughs> He, he was really instilled with this work ethic from his father. He never wanted to get his ear or rise above the blue-collar mentality. He loved it. He loved everything about it. He loved how his father took care of a family of six um, just working his butt off. So he got a job early on, about 1978, working for uh, a metalworks company. It was this guy. They, they, his nickname was Crazy Joe. And eventually, Crazy Joe did— Sounds reputable. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy Joe eventually did actually go crazy and went to the crazy hospital and Peter lost his job. But the point is, is that at a, <laughs> just like a crazy Joe went crazy, and went to the crazy hospital. <laughs> it was like it was a crazy day. I mean, is it is it true that Osama is the president? I, I got myself in trouble with with the law. So I, I I'm, I'm not allowed to vote anymore. Oh, big deal. As if I'm going to make a difference. You know, now all of a sudden I have all this time on my hands. And all, all this attention, and you know, idle hands are the work of Satan. And I must tell you, somebody down here likes me. The devil takes care of her own. Well, yeah, we, we were labeled both fascists and communists. We were just capitalists. Ha ha. With this upbringing, the the Catholic school, the 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 the, the good family, all these things that he had, he he was growing up, like I said, in Midwood, and and Red Hook is where he was born. So. He was mingling with all kinds of, of cultures and people. With this upbringing, Peter Steele is, really has quite a good childhood. 
nothing that really show anything that was uh, traumatic at all, the braces might be the only thing. Do you guys agree or disagree? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like because he has so much admiration for his parents, there's probably a good relationship there. He seemed to be supported in his dreams. He had good work ethic. He probably was nice to people, very tolerant because he's around a lot of people, exposed to a lot of people. The, the only thing that would, you know, if you were searching for trauma or anything that could have left a lasting mark on him would be, you know, being possibly bullied as a child. I mean, my dream was to become a sanitation worker, which I was. However... I did these sanitation jobs within the New York City Department of Parks. And you know how, I mean, I felt like such a man when I was driving a big fucking truck. Like, people were terrified of me. And I was like, man, if I could get my dick hard, just, it's like euphoric. It was like an extension of my uterus. I mean, penis. But he started working very early, and then he would get off, not sleep a lot, practice, practice, practice. So by 1979, Northern Lights, Peter Steele decided to start writing original songs. They would do covers, and that was a thing for every band back in the late 70s. When disco was king, if you were going to do hard rock or metal, you had to play covers of bands like Led Zeppelin, covers of bands like ACDC, things like that, because an audience just wants to hear what they know, because right now disco is king, and there isn't really an audience for metal. So, But Peter started his first original songs with Northern Lights, and then eventually these original songs he wanted to take, and so him, John Campos, and Josh Silver, they changed their image, they, they made themselves a more metal-type hard rock band, and they changed the name from Northern Lights to Fallout. <laughs> his first serious band it was created in 1979 and it was their senior year when they created this band and it, peter was the talent he wrote all the songs and josh silver was everything else the marketing the pro- producing the brains all, of the operation. all the all the stuff that was not the creative aspect josh silver was in charge of so peter and josh meeting at 10 years old had an, a very early start at the the game yeah, i'll just put a bullet in my head because you know I'm not just going to rot away and cause my family and my friends grief and sorrow and do the right thing and do a swan dive off uh, Big Ben, maybe. Yeah, that'd be good, because I could come and see that, you know, I wouldn't have to take a plane. I'll do a triple swan, and I'll have a whole team at the ground, and they can put up all tens when I hit the ground, <coughs> a big splat of blood and flesh. Yeah. I just hope to get it on TV. I must point out that we really don't take ourselves seriously, you know, but we try to interject a sense of humor, not to please the audience, but to please ourselves. Fallout would get a reputable name in New York City, you know, so they opened for Twisted Sister 
back in 81 before Twisted Sister blew up and Fallout would open with them. And Fallout would only play originals, though, and Twisted Sister would, you know, do their songs and the covers. But the house would be packed. So they had themselves a very good following. But back in 79 and 80 and 81, when disco was king and nobody, no record labels wanted to touch you know, metal or rock because they didn't think it would make money. It was getting to a point where even though they've only been a band for a couple of years, that they didn't exactly know how to sell that product, which was really frustrating. I, I feel I feel like I, I I shouldn't have done it because um in in hindsight it made me I think it made people think that I thought like who who I was. Like um being egotistical, I just thought it it, it was a joke, you know? And for the amount of money that they paid me, it, it was a joke. Well, back in those days when you were a metal of, or just a member of the metal community, I mean, you were just considered an outcast. So there's no, there's no point marketing towards the outcast. So like, how do you get this, how do you get this art out to the mainstream? Well, uh, I had a dream. It was like God came to me and said I should start digging to the center of the earth. So I've been busy digging. All right, moving on. By 1981, Josh and Peter, they had a, a, a disagreement and Fallout broke up. So at that time, they did have John Campos, Josh Silver, Peter Steele, and then Louis Beto was their drummer. So at that time, Josh Silver and John Campos decided to go a more pop-oriented route, and they did an album for a band called Original Sin. So uh, Peter and Louis, they decided to name their new band at the time, just temporary, was called Disciple. The guitar player that they found was Stan Pillis. Now, Stan Pillis was uh, a very talented guitar player, and, and Peter and Louie were all about him joining the band. So he did join uh, the band. The band did not have a name yet, um, and Stan suggested obesity. A lot of fans ask why, why Josh isn't here. Josh isn't here because he's smart, you know, because uh, I, I, I represent actually two-fifths of the band because I sing and play bass, and, you know, guitar, drums, keyboards. So if I'm fucked up, almost half the band's fucked up. So, like, there goes the show. When, when it was Peter's turn to be like, all right, what should we name the band? This is what Peter said. He wanted to name the band Carnivore. And then he followed with all this. He said, Carnivore would be the name of a roving bunch of post-apocalyptic thermonuclear warrior cannibals fighting with and feasting on the humans who had burrowed into the earth after the nuclear devastation of consecutive World Wars 3 and 4. Big Macs were like tofu to these survivalist bastards. They were after the, the living meat. It was Mad Max meets Soling Green, Roid Warrior meets Night of the Living Dead. Their manifesto promised the Trinity pledged allegiance to God, country, and most importantly, to each other. They will stop at nothing and in their quest for raw, hot flesh, and women alive or dead, and the ultimate accusation of the planet. think about that name i think that guy's a nerd yeah what a nerd (laughs) (laughs) he's such a nerd (laughs) yeah you could have just said something like carnivore what does that stand for well you know you want to be the one in the top of the food chain and everything like you could have just stopped right there he had a whole backstory yeah 
Yeah, instead you're burrowing into the mantle of the earth. Is that know? from DC or Marvel? Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> but do you see, like, like this is an open conversation, yeah. and people are virtually saying names out there, and Peter Steele's like, oh, I, I, I've, not only have I thought about this, I've created a universe yes. for this band. He's taken it So a it's step not further. a conversation. It's, no. it's virtually like, hey, I, I have exactly what we're going to do. So with that concept, costumes came into play. Characters came into play. He changed his name for Carnivore to Lord Petrus T. Steele. <clears throat> Most bands try to give the appearance that they're God's gift to women or music or <laughs> instrument endorsement. I don't know. But, you know, we figured we'd just go the opposite way and put on album one of the worst shows ever mm-hmm. that, you know, we could possibly come up with. And everything that, that's happened on here, the bomb threats, the fights on stage, the throwing of bottles, actually happened from one time or another one thing peter still was very adamant on uh when carnivore had its name was he would not be the front man he would be the bass player in the back and they would audition a front man and they uh, they tried and they tried and they tried louie and stan were like peter you got to be the front man you're six seven you're six eight you're menacing you're standing in front of the stage but peter just refused to do it he he felt too too much anxiety for it he didn't want anything to do with that you know i i think that this is truly the the end of civilization Really? Yeah. Believe that everyone is against everyone. The ultimate conspiracy. Yeah. Are they pit against each other by a particular? That, uh, that was extreme sarcasm. I was utilizing. No, oh, but it's at that, at, at that moment. Do you guys feel that we're talking about his personality and kind of the self-sabotaging way? Do you guys feel that he didn't want to be a front man because he couldn't trust himself? I think that's exactly what it was. I think that when you grow up like he did. And keep in mind, too, I do think the Catholic Church definitely played a part in this because you're just constantly filled with guilt after guilt after guilt. And then here you are, you're 6'7", you grew up with braces on your legs, you probably got clowned every single day. So the idea of you getting up there in front of people, putting yourself on display, has got to fill you with paralyzing fear because you know they're going to be like, look at that fucking tower. You know, they're going to they're going to be freaked out just by the look of it. But there is a marketing aspect to it. And I think the other band members saw that he is always on stage. When you are somebody who looks that abnormal, you don't walk around and live a normal life. Mm-hmm. People constantly are coming up to him and going, how's the weather up there? You yeah. know, like he's just constantly being inundated with people reminding him that he is the most visible person in the room. That's like I, I, I agree with you. hundred percent terrifying. Has to be. I do miss Brooklyn. I am. I'm, I'm very much like a, a homebody. I used to work for the city back home. I worked for the Parks Department for seven years, and Brooklyn has always been a, a, a very fundamental part of my life, but it's also the hell I know, you know? I'm just a big dick with a big dick, pretty much. And he would do, he had a mocking vocal style. Like, he would roll all of his R's. Like, like whore, he'd be like, whoa. Like, he would, do, he would do that on, all, on a lot of his songs, so it'd be like like he's making like i'm not really a singer i'm just like sarcastically doing this because i have to he would have that attitude on stage but that drew people to him even more because he made it look like he wasn't putting in effort when he was putting in a lot of effort so it looked like he was just like going up there and winging it but he was in actuality a perfectionist but i also think he intentionally put that tongue-in-cheek aspect to his singing style because he almost because if he failed it would be a lot easier for him to be like, guys, I'm not taking it seriously. I mean, what the fuck did you think? You know, you're stupid for taking it seriously. It's important for me because my goal is isolation. Mm. I really 
don't like people too much. I don't like mm. to be around people. And it's kind of ironic that mm. in this occupation, yeah, it is. I'm forced at times to make a fool out of myself in front of up to 10,000 people per night. Mm. So, you know, but the road to heaven sometimes leads through hell. And Peter had, like I said, right now he's clean and sober, man. He was not a drinker. He was not a drug addict. I mean, he had a long-term girlfriend for a while. And he, he said he broke up with her because he's like, you were cheating on me. He was with her for like two years. And by cheating, he meant she smoked weed, not mm. with someone else. So he broke up with her for that. So he, he, he was very into a healthy lifestyle and all those things. So Stan did play a show with Carnivore as they suited up. Now, their suits were pretty much, they'd had fur over their crotch. They looked like barbarians. They had like football helmet uh, pads. Football pads. Pads with spikes through them. Yeah, right. things like that. So like that, the Road Warriors from WWE. Yes, that was kind of their costumes. They would go on stage. Peter would have like a chain that instead of a guitar strap, things like that. So oh, that had to hurt. The first album we did, Carnivore, how brilliant the title was for that. Um, it was slow and dirty. It was like somebody with osteoporosis, arthritis, hardening of the arteries, chronic constipation. That's somebody who would listen to the first Carnivore. So Carnivore very much had their first show with Stan. After their first show, Stan did leave the band, and they had to find another guitar player. So he put so Peter put an ad out in the Village Voice, and who they got was Keith Alexander. Now Keith Alexander would be the guitar player, and they did give him the job, but Peter was never sold on him because. His technical skills, especially in the studio, and now keep in mind, if a guy doesn't love the stage, but he loves to create music, studio is where it's at. Like I said, he's a perfectionist, so Keith would, was not good enough for the studio. Now, when he auditioned, obviously, it was, it was in a live setting, and, and Keith seemed to work really well with the band in a live setting, but he wasn't on the same level as Louis or Peter. Regardless, they took him in reluctantly, and uh, they started writing the song. Now, the songs that they wrote on their first record. <laughs> it's timeless. <laughs> timeless. It showed a, uh, it, it was a mocking comedy style that fit Carnivore, the image, the barbarian. It, it showed a very specific style of humor. And it, it had a lot of songs that, like song titles like Male Supremacy, World War Three and Four. So it was all part of like the gimmick. There wasn't much seriousness on there. However, like a song like Male Supremacy, you would have, it would show the early things of what would future, his future project Type O, where he would pretty much have mocking and joking humor and then eventually kind of make it a very sad and solemn song, even though it's in a comic-y world.
guys feel about that kind of songwriting skills? Do you think he was just too young? or No, I think he immediately knew how to put something different out. You know, like you were just saying, like there was this comedy, this the lyrics obviously are comical, but then all of a sudden he puts it to this really slow, melodic song. I mean, back in those days, I mean, that was that's probably why it was so funny. Like you're talking about something funny, but then it's just just the way that the way it was delivered. It was just so odd. And it was a ripe time. I mean, because stand up comedy as a whole was really hot at this time. It was, you know, when it was really like at the peak of peaks where everyone was watching stand up and stand up was a part of your everyday life. And it was on television every single day. And so people loved that. People loved a comedic flair on something. And he's putting a comedic flair on something for a, a world of people that already have this air of sarcasm and humor and everything they do. And I also think too, he's putting the comedic flair on it just because if somebody's like, Oh, that sucks. He's like, well, dude, I'm just trying to be funny. Relax. Right. It was a safety net to not be serious. Yes, exactly. Because he, 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 that's an insecurity thing that he's not putting something out there that he's like, this is how I represent myself. He's putting a version of himself out there. Normally, I write songs by ste- stealing riffs from Beatles albums played played backwards. I have a special turntable, and actually, they're saying I bury Pete, not Paul, which I find kind of prophetic and scary. Now, when someone is full of anxiety, embarrassment, but they have talent, and everybody's telling you you're talented, and he's choosing characters to represent himself and all those things. Like you guys said, you guys think Peter Stewart is a nerd and like, oh, he's got all these things that he thinks is cool, you know, and he's trying to fit into a very tough, edgy crowd, which is the metal scene that is rising right now. Um, Do you guys think in his mind he's an imposter and he does not fit in? I think that most artists... And most people who are creatives feel like imposters at some point, just a blanket across the board. You always feel like you don't belong. You didn't do enough. You, a little part of you feels like you're never included in the group of the people you've looked at, you've looked up to that whole time. And I think that if you couple that with his, him being such a dramatic looking person his whole life and him having to feel like he has to put on a show to fit into a group, there's no way that he can't feel like an imposter. Before the show Saturday, I really was not feeling well, and uh, I was highly medicated and combining antibiotics, Theraflu, like every over-the-counter thing that that you could possibly buy with a, a quart of Jägermeister makes for some interesting behavior on stage. Maybe that's why you hit my friend in the head with a bottle by accident. And he is an artist that always felt like putting on a show would help his band grow. And it was always self-deprecating, something that you learn from comedy and from stage. It's like if you fall flat on your face and they don't know if you meant to do it or didn't, it's okay. Is that a mentality you feel? I just think that it's a way to cover up any mistakes that may happen along the way again it once again it's putting it out there to everyone that look i'm not taking this shit that seriously you guys neither should you but in, in reality he really is taking it seriously we also threw out 250 rolls of toilet, toilet paper. paper i um i wanted to soak them in gasoline but somebody thought that that might be a fire hazard so at this time as well peter is very blue collar he really looks up to his dad all those things he uh ends up getting married secretly on halloween the girl he's been dating for a little while donna white so they get married secretly nobody knows on halloween the honeymoon was just them watching horror movies and peter's still working constantly you know in construction fields steel works things like that 
And she recalls like all that he ever really wanted to do was just go to nature and, and kind of have this simple, simple life. But his talent and a lot of people would always tell him like he's special in what he was doing and his mind that he could never break away from the music scene. Well, let me tell you something. When, when I was using lots of coke, I mean, I, I was your typical paranoid drug addict, you know, thinking that there were cameras in, in the shower heads and like, you know, making sure that I turned a certain way, like when I toweled my balls off so that the camera couldn't see me. I was just really, really crazy. So I, as far as conspiracies go, I think that that they certainly exist, but I have to start with, with myself first, you know, and um, even though the, the, the drugs are out of me, it's made me think differently. I mean, I've, I've become a very paranoid person, but maybe I have a reason to be paranoid. I don't know. So, like AA says, and NA, and triple a you know take one one minute one one day at a time now carnivore they had a batch of songs and they had the following and all those things songs like predator carnivore world war three and four thermonuclear warfare like i said all in character of that barbarian style that first uh demos and records they did um they didn't have a record label company now roadrunner records was just now rising in 1980, that company came. They had certain acts, but one act that broke away was a, an act named King Diamond. Now, King Diamond was in a very important metal band called Merciful Faith. He broke away, and as Roadrunner Records was looking for bands, they played King Diamond the record, and King Diamond was like, sign that band. But King Diamond also comes to the stage with like a lot of theatrics. It's a show. He obviously saw someone that shared the same type of passion in putting on a show. So why not? Why not go with that route? King Diamond, I'm sure when he came out, it was like, what the fuck is this? You know what I'm saying? But then it caught on and then people gravitated towards it. As Mr. Freud said, life is sex. <laughs> so in other words, if you're not screwing, you're not living. Mm. You know, and having five older sisters and five younger nieces, I'm used to being around women. Mm. And I, I prefer their company to men. Mm. I, have, I have no use for men whatsoever. Mm. They're just my competition. In 1985, it's the right time and the right place because now disco is gone and metal is getting major bands like Metallica signed to Elektra, Megadeth. Now there's a, there's a, a scene that is growing underneath him. There was a rubber band effect right after that, right after disco. When he was coming up, all anybody wanted was disco. And then at this point that Pete's talking about, oh my God, everyone was like, disco sucks. Everybody was wearing shirts that said disco sucks. There were songs about songs out there just trashing disco. Men weren't viewed as men if they were going to discos. All of a sudden, there was this major backlash towards that type of industry. And bands like this... They were kind of leading the way. But uh, sex is pretty much at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. Now that it brings death, it's nature's way of cleansing the earth. Well, he's getting back to the age thing again, but like I said before, uh, negative is the way, which is why we all have the negative thing in our homes, you know, so that when we go into clubs or go to the mall, you know, people see us like long hair, skanky people, and they say, oh, he or she must have AIDS, and we're like, no, you see, I have a tattoo and some holes in my arm to prove that... Uh, I'm currently AIDS-free. They had a record deal in place with Roadrunner Records, one of the first bands, and this would be a record label that Peter Steele would be on for the majority of his career in all his bands. So in the studio, once again, Peter and Louie were getting their parts, but Keith was not 
able to get his parts. And keep in mind, it's $100 an hour for the studio. So the frustrations of someone like Peter, who's a perfectionist with Keith, was getting to a, a point where it wasn't looking good for continuing the band. Keith would take the guitar and uh, do solos for Keith because Keith was... As a guitar player, he can perform on stage, but when it was time to, to come up with material or any kind of performance, he lacked there. So Peter... So he wasn't creating music. He was just basically doing what he was told. Yes, in a lot of ways. So when they needed him to step up, it was costing the band, the label, everybody a lot of money. So this caused a huge rift between the two. But a lot of people hate me. <laughs> Jealousy. Jealousy? Why Bastards. do you think they're jealous? Oh, uh, because my nipples are bigger than theirs. Oh, that's what yeah, That's probably it. Wouldn't be your height or anything well i believe everything is in proportion yes i have seen but oh you have seen you've okay yeah did you see the uh uh scratch and sniff version you'll <laughs> like how it smells <laughs> okay so keith did record that first uh self-titled carnivore record eventually keith would be let go now that's one thing that Louis was very adamant about and okay with, and so was the label, was touring across the world. Peter Steele wanted nothing to do with it. He did not want to tour across America. He didn't want to tour across the world. He wanted to just stay married, uh, keep his job, and and just be kind of a, a local hero. Yeah, he just wanted to turn rock and roll into a nine-to-five job, and that's just not going to happen. And do you feel in a way that he's self-sabotaging? Because at this point, his band is 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 in that thrash universe they haven't crossed over too much but with a push with a label with a major tour with someone like king diamond if carnivore went on tour with them this would be career changing i think that's a symptom of that thing that we're talking about it's a symptom of the fact that he does feel like an imposter there's something inside of him that craves the performance that craves the creative that craves all those things but there's also something inside of him that tells him he doesn't deserve it that he's a piece of shit that he should just be happy with what he's got and so why reach for the stars when what you have is good enough between the first carnivore album and the second one i spent a lot of time at cbtv's and uh Got to be very friendly with Roger from Agnostic Front and uh, the guys in Cro-Mags and Murphy's Law and stuff like that. So AF was looking for a drama and they hired Louie. <clears throat> and that was probably the best education he got because that, that stuff is so fast and Louie played double bass. AF had asked me to write a couple of songs for them. So it was a great education. So that's... Why, if you're wondering, probably not. Retaliation is like a combination of uh, the monkeys meets village people. Two of my favorite bands. I cannot compete. And I mean, their album was available in Europe. Their album was available in North America. And it was out there. But without touring support, I mean, how much would it really get out there, especially in this kind of climate? Especially in the 80s. I mean, it's like, again, it's so difficult to describe to someone who did not have the internet coming up, just trying to figure out a way to get your band out there. And the only way for your band to get out there was you had to do live shows. And if you were only going to stay in this one little area, you're only going to get so big, you know, then, and if you have no, if you have no drive to get out, to go out there and get bigger and blow your band up even more, which would increase your chance for success. Obviously I think you're, you're just sabotaging yourself. You're just trying to intentionally hold yourself back because you're afraid of success. Do you, yeah, do you think he believes in himself on that level? No, no. absolutely not. I'm never going to be allowed back here, right? Be serious for a minute. Christ. Now she's talking. Thank you for being here. The interview was good. 
Oh. I wish you the best of luck, and I hope to see you on tour this summer, all right? You have a problem with that? Will Is everything all right? Will you marry me? Sure. Last question here. Oh, man. All I want is white castles out of life. Do you think at this stage, um, but why does he keep Carnivore alive? I think, he's, I think he just has no other choice. He wants it. I mean, he does want these things. That's my point. Is there? He does want it. it. A lot of performers do this. They want the thing. They want to go after it. They can't help themselves but go after it. But they always put restrictions and they hold a little leash on themselves because they, if they reach for more than they're expected to do more, then, they're, then there's a bigger gap of failure and there's less failure at the level that you're at. Exactly. And there is something to be said about the bands that actually go for it. But again, he's so afraid of failure for going after it. Everybody that just drops everything and goes for it. The tales where it works out for him is fantastic. But at this point in his career, he's met many people that went for it and didn't get it. I believe that people become a reflection of their experiences. So my life changed a lot between Carnivore and when Typo was uh, instigated let's just say from like 86, 87 to like 89 or 90, I started to listen to a lot of different music, like The Cure, Curve, Lycia, um, Simple Minds. You know, people want to call that pussy music. Well, you know what? You call me a pussy, you are what you eat. At this point, by 1986, 1985, now, as we were mentioning, disco was out. Disco was very huge in New York. Now, the New York hardcore movement is happening. CBGB's is a, is a major venue. CBGB's was a haven for him. So, with him spending most of his time there, he's getting more involved in the New York hardcore scene. I like the punk rock movement that was happening on the West Coast, a very liberal movement with bands like Dead Kennedys and Black Flag and all these things, where they were very anti-government. The one thing the New York hardcore movement is that they were very right wing. They were very blue collar. They were very anti a lot of people that just didn't want to work is kind of the way. They so, were very pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That was a running theme in those, those In, in the hardcore scene. Now, now, this is something that Peter Steele was very much into. You were talking before about hardcore people resenting metal, sort of an invasion of turf kind of a thing. Absolutely. And I'm guilty as well. After discovering hardcore... Like I said, CBGB Sunday afternoons. A lot of what the hardcore slash punk crowd designated as bridge and tunnel kids. Oh, I was one of them. When I was not a bridge and tunnel kid, I was like grandpa. You know, with like the flannel shirt and the suspenders and uh, the pants rolled up and combat boots. So I really owe them an apology because... Uh, was a very special thing that they had there. It was completely anti-rock, which of course makes it rock music. That the audience became the focus of the attention. Um, with Carnivore still happening but not touring, Agnostic Front is one of those bands that uh, came out during this New York hardcore movement. So Louis played drums for the record Cause for Alarm in 1985. Now, Peter was asked to write lyrics for that, and he did write lyrics for a song called Public Assistance. Now, the lyrics on that record alone, a lot of controversy was garnered behind them. Agnostic Front had to go on a talk show, Donahue, which was a very popular daytime talk show at the time, and discuss their right-wing views. 
Let me show you the second lyric here. About public assistance. Public assistance. You spend your life on welfare lines. Listen to this now. Those um, or looking for handouts. Why don't you go find a job? You birth more kids to up your checks so you can buy more drugs, cash in food stamps, and get drunk. Has this got a kind of reactionary look to it, doesn't it? Uncle Sam takes half my pay so you can live for free. I got a family and bills to pay. No one hands money to me. This is a... That's right. This could be the song of the... Of the, uh, of the world. Yeah. How come it's minorities who cry things are too tough on TV with their gold chains? Claim they don't have enough. I say make them clean the sewers. Have we got, have we got racism here? Not racism, reality. Don't take no resistance. If they don't like it, go to hell and cut their public assistance. Well, we've got ourselves a real, real uh, mixed bag here. This is... Uh, we're not racist, we're right. I'll only take a moment. So Peter did say a quote when asked about the lyrics to the songs. And his quote was, if people choose not to work, if they choose not to contribute to society, why should they have a voice and why should they have a say in what goes on? If you're not contributing, then you must be taken away. So at this point, Peter Steele is about, he's 24, 24 years old. That's kind of a, a mentality he has. The, the interviewer that he was doing in this fanzine responded with, well, that's a very right-wing point of view. Peter responded, you can call it what you want, but I come from a background where normal people work for a living. They don't live off the government's back. They don't live off anybody's back. They have pride. They stand on their own two feet. If a person chooses not to work, that's fine. But don't go and collect benefits just because you're too lazy to get out of bed. Your lyrics here are racist. It's reality, huh? Not racist. Whose work is public assistance? Yeah. Agnostic front. Yeah, ag yeah. Public assistance. Why don't you go find a job? Uncle Sam takes half my pay. Okay. I'm the guitarist for Agnostic Front, and we just speak of social unrest, yeah. uh, conflict of interest, which in turmoil brings, uh, you know, controversy. Yeah. And uh, it speaks for itself. Speaks for itself. There is no racism in that song. There's no color mentioned. There's no, there's no class. All it says is what it says. How come it's minorities who cry, things are too tough, on TV with their gold chain? Where do you find, where do you find racism? You're sticking it in. You brought it up, and now you're going to attach that to us. I see. That's not right. Okay. There's no racism there. I could take you downtown and show you people yep. that have babies just so their welfare checks are raised and get more money. Peter Steele was a working class guy legitimately. So what do you guys think about those viewpoints from Peter? I, I mean, I'm not surprised considering that his hero was his father and his father was a blue collar worker. Of course, you're going to think that if you idolize a parent, anything that goes against their belief system, this is why, you know, people tend to have, struggle to form their own opinions and just end up regurgitating the belief systems of their parents is when you idolize a parent, you idolize them and you have that unconditional love, that genetic connection. So there's also this huge thing in where it's, it's very an unreasonable opinion. It's, this is the way things are. This is the facts. He grew up with a father who broke his back supporting all those kids. He knows what it's like to work hard. He knows that it's possible. It's another reason why he's content living where he is. It's because he had contentment in his life growing up. And now he has a little bit better than that. Of course, he's going to be content. Like this is this viewpoint is not surprising considering how he was raised. And on top of that, he's 24 years old and there is nobody that believes their bullshit more than someone in their 20s. There is no backing down. Uh, maybe how journalists sensationalize the Nazi aspect or the racial aspect of supposed carnivore lyrics like race. Oh, 
Here we go again, man. I told you not to touch upon this. Let's talk about the setting of where he's seeing this. He's in Brooklyn, New York in the mid eighties. Now this is one of the most violent places. It, you see a lot of, of the dredge of society during this time. Brooklyn's a different place today, but in the 1980s, there was a lot of things going on, drugs, and I'm sure, Sex. and I'm sure all those, I'm sure all the people that he had disdain for, all the people that weren't working, all the people that were looking for a handout, that was constantly on display for him. Yes. And he continued in that same interview. I have to wake up for work at 4.30 in the morning, get my ass out of bed and into the freezing cold because I have pride. And yet I pay taxes so some slob can sit in bed watching cartoons while I'm out cleaning the park for them. That's my point. I know that I, I have personally disappointed a lot of people and, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to rectify the damage that I've done. He was destined to have this point of view. There's no way you can grow up the way he did in the environment he did, seeing, to your point, the, the people on the street around him living that way, but have your father living the way he is, and he's your hero. There's no way he wasn't going to turn out having this, this right Reaganomics viewpoint. You know, there's no way. And on top of that, too, when you're 24 years old, it's hard to give the opposition a chance to speak. It's hard to give the opposition a chance for them to make their point because you're so dead set on your point that there is no way that the whether whether you're liberal or conservative, there's no way that this opposing viewpoint could possibly make sense. Meanwhile, they're looking at you the same exact way. Let's make a couple of points. This country, proud American country, now that we're about to celebrate our statue, has really very little time for its kids. I mean, there is nothing more useless in this culture than a 16-year-old anything. We don't know what to do with you. We do not accept you where you are. We are impatiently waiting for you to grow up. We think you're lazy. We don't think you get it. And we are working so hard ourselves that we've literally uh, probably lost our connection with many of you. Um, that's number one. That's another point. We have now raised the drinking age to 21, consigning most of our young people to break the law. Expecting people in this culture to get to 21 without consuming alcohol is, shall we say, unrealistic. It does not mean that everybody under 21 is drinking. It does say, however, that a significant percentage of those who are do. We should also make this point. Beyond that, uh, I'm not sure we have enough jobs to go around for these folks. I'm, tr I'm, I don't, I'm not sure we do at all. I, I, I think there's a lot of boredom out there. The world was very hard-edged. There wasn't a participation prize. Like you said, it was a very hard edge. It's like you need to work for everything you get, and, and people are going to try to take that away from you, so you got to keep what's yours. Now, with that, that form of mindset, though, he, he would get pride in, in a lot of things that were questionable later. You know, uh, a, a quote from him in a fanzine in the same time, 1985, when they were asking him about the same song on that uh, Agnostic Front record was, and he was clarifying statements that people felt were too right wing. I reacted to the fact of living in an environment where as a white heterosexual male, I am excluded from things because we're considered the majority. But that is not really the case here anymore. It doesn't sit too well with me that when you take a civil service exam here in the city, you get more points if you're not white or if you're disabled, female, or you served in the military. So I wish that I'd been born a poor black deformed lesbian because then I could have any job I want. Well, it's like if you don't like it here, you could pack your shit and leave. Like, were you Throw it in my face. <laughs> you know what? You know, he can keep, you know, he's not going to keep the camera on, but I wish he would because I really got to pee. Then I got these gold stones lately, but they're like diamonds. 
I could take a fucking dick on the fucking bowl. I don't see them so good, so I gotta stick my hand in there. Is this what you expected? No. Do, do you want me to skip over that question? Who cares? I mean, this is this is a lot like the rhetoric we have today, man. It's yeah. a, it's a lot about you know the straight white males going, well, what about us? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like well, me and the Proud Boys. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not a surprising viewpoint. I mean, especially with the the economy and the the global condition at that point, as far as you know, global relations were still kind of rough, and there was things Cold going on. War. Cold War the was war, going the on. The wall was still up. I mean, the talks about homosexuality were huge with you know the explosion of you know the AIDS quilt all that stuff was going on so it was very public i mean these are all things that you know there's the social climate started in the 80s calmed down in the 90s is coming back but back at this time it's just like being stirred up in this pot for him and so he's starting to feel like people are still trying to figure out how do we include the minorities without making it obvious you know that we're including and he's living in this world where people are just affirmative action we're just going to do affirmative action we're just going to include them automatically and and that that's why he has the viewpoint he's going to have that viewpoint it's the only one he has So with these thoughts, people are starting to align him with a uh, with a more of a neo-Nazi mentality, which he has to fight a lot. And the New York hardcore scene had to fight a lot. The skinheads were in that scene. There was a rise there. music peter is so engulfed in this hardcore scene the music of carnivore is going away from the thrash the barbarian outfits are are, are slowly going away and now they are more fitting in like the new york hardcore scene and they want to find a guitar player who will play more of that style so before they put out their second record they have to find another guitar player still at this time he's still a very controversial character now he's an, an artist that's established in new york but he's not a worldwide artist So he is an easy scapegoat for people to be like, this is what this guy. And Peter's political and social views, when people asked him, he was always very open of them. One one thing that he did say in a quote was uh, that he was Darwinian. I consider myself an evolutionist. I believe that superior specimens should dominate. I think that the weak should perish. I don't think these are cold thoughts. This is the way things have been for the last billion years. Once you stop adapting, you stop evolving. Well, when you're six seven, that's pretty easy to fucking say. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm the master race. <laughs> Continuing a quote: "In every species except our precious one, the inferior are left behind to perish, freeing the more adapted to go on about their worthy lives. This ensures that healthy offspring will be produced by superior specimens." It was really shocking to, to like go from to to playing in in front of like a ninety percent skinhead audience 
to after Bloody Kisses came out to having like 80 like of the hottest women waiting in line outside of your bus. I'm like, the B49 to Manhattan Beach doesn't stop here, sweetie. Like, what's the matter with these girls? And it's just like, so my point is, yeah, it did go to my head a little bit. I mean, not to sound disgusting, but, uh, but, but I will be honest then. I got more pussy in one week than I had gotten in like the first 30 years of my life. And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about kittens or cats. And he continued with, I remember all the hardcore guys got labeled with the Nazi thing, as if Agnostic Front, Cromax, and Murphy's Laws were Nazis. They weren't Nazis. They may have been highly reactionary characters. All their friends, all their culture, and all their scene were in culturally New York City. It comes from a New York psyche. It's not white supremacist at all. So he's saying that this is how it is here, and you're trying to represent a different world. Does he have any kind of truth to that? Well, mentality? yeah, I think so. I just think that they're looking at it like, okay, well, they probably saw it. They, what happened was they probably saw a couple of skinheads at one of his shows, and they were like, okay, he obviously is playing to that crowd. And it's like, no, you can't control who likes you. Well, it doesn't help that the rhetoric he's putting out there is like, well, <laughs> well the, if I was black, I could have what I wanted. Well, right. You see, <laughs> like, here's the thing. I, I personally think that when you are – putting out the rhetoric of, look, man, poor white me. The fact that it's getting taken as, like, super racist, it's like, dude, no, it's not racist. It's just this guy's trying to make excuses. That's all it is. Yeah. I was young and ignorant and uncircumcised at the time. So my attitude was, well, I really don't want to be some fucking rock and roller because that was never my ambition in life. Like, it was a sanitation worker. So whether I fucking pick up garbage or light it, it's the same thing, ultimately. And so with this attitude and with this press, um, they do find another guitar player. His name is Mark Piovanetti. And now uh, Mark is much more adamant to that hardcore style. So as Peter is writing new songs, he's trying to put out a lot of these thoughts. He's seeing that the words that he says can give his band an edge, can give his personality an edge. But do you believe his believing all these thoughts as he's saying them? I think at this point, he's just putting out whatever he can to shock people. I think he's just trying to be that guy. The guy's just kind of constantly needling society. I mean, he's that he's a bullied nerd who grew up, made a band about nerdy shit. And now he's just bucking against society because he feel, still feels ostracized. This is all him talking about this whole straight white male thing is just another symptom. This whole thing, all of this is just symptoms of him continuing to feel like he's being ostracized by society because of who he is, because of things he cannot help. And I think that's something that he holds on to because I think the fact that uh, society is out to get him, he's like, well, I'll fucking show you society. And now he's putting out these more and more hardcore songs. Were there journalists who... Uh took carnivore lyrics a little too seriously uh, who maybe didn't understand songs like Race War or uh, USA for USA well I must back up and say that Paul Marx said he was uh, Groucho Marx's cousin who controls the media controls the masses but I like to say who controls the media controls the masses so carnivore which I really wanted to make the at the time uh, the quintessential rock band by attacking sociological existing values at the time. There's a lot of big words at once, right? Rock music in the past, when the country was very right, rock music has been left. Carnivore was just as a socio-political experiment, right-wing, because not only did we upset the parent and the child, 
but the embryo as well. So the first song he wrote with Mark after all this has happened, after uh, Agnostics Front's rise in the New York hardcore scene, the first song he wrote uh, for the new Carnivore record was Jesus Hitler. Now, this song, in his own words, is it's about a man who's born with the souls of both Christ and Hitler within him. He's totally confused because he doesn't know if he wants to kill the Jews or save them. Is this the Second Coming or the Fourth Reich? The guy's torn inside, ripped to shreds. His mother's a nun, raped by a Nazi at the end of the Second Great War. I wrote songs like Jesus Hitler, which was in fact comparing Christianity with fascism. Well, you know, the cross is a cross, whether it's crooked or not. In this song, he, he played with vocabulary, he played with words. He had uh, puns like Naziolix, Neo Theofascist, the Holy Swastika, Reich und Roll. <laughs> Reich and roll. Mm. Mm. All those are in the... I can't uh, wait for this year's Oktoberfest. In the tale of uh, Jesus Hitler, the song. So, Hess on my left and Peter on my right. Will it be war or peace? I uh, thought, those are lyrics. I thought Christopher Nolan loved a backstory, but this dude loves his fucking backstory. Yeah, I just can't get enough <laughs> just of Just everything he writes, yeah. he has to have a huge backstory Yeah, you could have just said, it. Like, well, it's a story, but it's uh, the song's called uh, Jesus Hitler. It's about, ah, it's about this guy's got this inner struggle but instead it's like no this is what it's like a nun, a nun yeah. was raped by a nazi by, no, made by a nazi in the second great world war and, you know, in a galaxy far far away a long long time ago <laughs> it sounds like god is dead um suck my dick which is really really like funny now because i'm 41 i'm impotent so i will not even play this song live because it's impossible now is this ridiculous is he doing it on purpose? Two-part question. Yes and yes. Trolling. He's trolling. That's what it is. He's pushing buttons because he literally, I think he's one of those dudes that, uh, although it comes off as arrogance a lot, I think his, like I, him feeling the way he does about himself, the circumstances he's put himself in, all led up to him being the kind of person that just looks around at the world and is cynical. He's just cynical about everybody and everything. Is this New York culture in the 80s? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I'm, that's a hard thing. I don't think Jesus Hitler. In the, in the, okay, okay. In the youth culture. Yeah, Jesus Hitler. I love New York. Yeah. People who I interviewed said they felt a very strong sense of isolation out there. There are fewer things, I think, that are meant for teenagers to do out in the suburbs. There are fewer movie theaters that are around. It's weird. These guys have weird hair. But to talk to people, give them a chance to, you know, say something for themselves express that there's a pretty fairly diverse group out there of different people who don't all feel exactly the same way that our individuals have a you know a diverse range of concerns as we mentioned mark just joined the band mark was still proving himself now they played a few live shows this is what peter was asking mark to do next for their next performance he said he wanted him to shave his mustache to resemble a hitler and dress in a nazi uniform on on stage Mark remembered that he was completely serious about it, not from some sort of malicious racist Nazi ideal. He just thought that the accomplishments of Nazi Germany were spectacular and sensational and shocking. Okay. Bad choice of words. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, this, this was, Mark said that that's how Peter no, felt. No, that's what I'm getting at. When you look at Adolf Hitler, you go, did he leave a dent in this world? And when people look at it, like from that point of view, it's kind of, it, even though it's true, it's still kind of weird and scary. It's icky. Yeah. It's icky. We don't like it. 
I don't get the like. I don't. <laughs> this whole thing. <laughs> it's icky. I mean, I don't like it. I get this. I, here's what I get about it. Here's what I get about it. So, so Kiss. You know, that's he grew up listening to Kiss albums and stuff. And I get that that he probably latched onto the theatrics a little bit of that. And we've seen how Kiss and the costumes and stuff. That kind of music has evolved over the years to become a viable form of art you know and of course there's going to be bad iterations of that and i think that this was less about the nazi thing and more about the sensate like him sensationalizing it i think it was more about creating a stage moment although based on this guy's perspective he felt like yeah, it was like, just peter being like i love nazis yeah i just like i like the idea peter's like no come on man it'll be cool no so, <laughs> but, but again knowing peter's personality he could be fucking with that dude that's what i'm getting at it, it is a publicity stunt but what kind of press do you get? He like we talked about his self-sabotaging. We talked about a lot of things that made him kind of special, but also questionable, correct? And so to to try to force a new guitar player to do that and be serious about it as as has been reported. What other kind of I guess wisdom can you offer the youth out there who are struggling, having a tough time facing their lives and facing the future? Um I think uh, believing in God, especially Jesus Christ, is very important. God doesn't have to be the old man, you know, with a long beard and in the sky, you know, sitting on a throne, or, you know, you know, kicking the devil in the head. Uh, he, he, he can, he or she can, can be, be with whatever you want. I just think that everybody should should really understand that um, that everyone is here for some greater good. It doesn't have to be your own or my own. And we're, we're all, all part of God's plan. And um, I, I pray, and this is going to sound very strange, but I pray for more pain. Because God only gives the heaviest stones to those who can lift them. And my name, Peter, happens to me rock. And I used to be stoned. So I went from dope to pope. Do you guys feel Peter was serious about doing that on stage? Yes. No. Okay. So Mark quit the band and said, look, I cannot do that. That's not something that's good. It's a bad publicity stunt. It'll ruin my career as a musician forever. So with that, Peter was like, okay, well, I respect you more now. So you don't have to do that. And you can stay in the band. And Mark does stay into the band. So it was like a test. Like if he says yes to Hitler, he's out of the band. <laughs> this is my point. I don't, I don't know if it is a test. This is, this is the hardest thing about telling the story of Peter Steele. He is truly someone that never says he lives in jokes and dark humor lives in it. Everything that's presented is either a joke to him or in dark humor. So it's like for you to say like he had these thoughts or believe this, it's almost just like insecurities kind of building and moving. I think this only bolsters my point that he's trolling with this whole Nazi thing, because when he did it, he would have gotten joy out of the dude doing it to watch that happen, being the troll that he is. And then being able to say it to him and seeing his reaction and getting him to quit the band and then being like, ah, I was just messing with you, man. Like, I just, I feel like this is just how he, like you said, he lives in that. See, I think he tried to get him to dress like Hitler, not because he's a Hitler sympathizer, but I think he tried to get him to dress like Hitler because of all the publicity that could have been garnered. And then when he quit the band, he's like, nah, I was just playing with you, brother. Come on.
So people are labeling him with the right wing ideology. He's kind of they're, they're obviously he's using this Nazi stuff as humor, which obviously is not funny, but it is getting a rise out of people. And he's noticing that more and more. Obviously, Mark's not going to do what was requested of him. So Peter shaves his head to look like a skinhead. So that's the next move on his mark. Trolling? I think more trolling. I, so? I, I just can't take him seriously. I don't think anything at. he does is serious. I think everything he does is tongue-in-cheek. I think everything he does is to prove how superior and more intelligent he is to everyone around him. Nobody says shit like perish and woe is me in regular conversation and doesn't think they're some kind of fucking superior intellectual being. I think the reason why he shaved his head, too, is it's like, see, I shave my head. I'm not like these guys. See? Like it's like when it's one of these people that are constantly trying to prove a point, you know, you end up stepping at shit so much along the way. I, I don't, I don't even think it's about proving a point for him though. That's the thing. I think that's what's so dangerous about guys like Peter Steele. It's not about proving a point. It's just a, the only point he wants to prove is to himself, and it's that I'm smarter than everybody. Well, I don't like the human race in general. We are the the only species who hunt a sport. Yeah. And who who kill due to uh, emotional need, and that's a little hard for me to deal with. And the definition of depression is anger turned within. You can't stay angry all of your life because okay. it takes too much energy. And there are better things in life to expel energy on than being angry at someone or something. So this uh, this pain that I felt in the past has seeped into me, and I've turned it in on myself, which is where it belongs. So I have, you know, written songs not so much based upon the anger that people cause me to feel, but on the uh, depression that I feel from time to time. Wants a reaction, and he is a highly intelligent person. So obviously, he shaves his head. There is a skinhead hardcore movement going on. So he is going to be catered and done that. When asked why he shaved his head, this was his response. I am a complete conformist. I'm completely pro-government, pro-police, pro-rules. I am extremely anti-anarchist. I would have made a wonderful totalitarian. Trolling. Trolling. (laughs) He's fucking trolling, dude. He's fucking trolling. I want, but Jesus. He thinks he is so much smarter. He thinks that everyone is dumb, and he thinks that this is why he'll never take his music seriously, because he doesn't think that the consumer base is there to accept it. It's not that he's insecure. I'm starting to feel like it's the insecurity went away, and at some point his ego kicked in, and now it's just about I'm so much smarter than everyone. I think it's just there's a, there's a joy he gets out of manipulating society. Yeah, that's that, that superior intellect yeah. thing. So Roadrunner Records, who put out their first record, was like, look, guys, we're not going to put out your second record unless you sell us, send us a completely the, the whole record you want to put out demoed because of certain tracks like Jesus Hitler, Race War, USA for USA, a pro-USA song, Angry Neurotic Catholics. This record, Retaliation, has a song called Suck My Dick. He does his first skit on the record called Jack Daniels and Pizza, which is virtually just you hearing him vomit and throw up. Comedy is very much in his realm. Edgy, dark, 
comedy, something that is from his scene. His humor is now very, very edgy. So he calls up Josh Silver, his old friend, who has a studio, um, and they do a complete demo for Roadrunner Records um, and send it on over. So Roadrunner, here's the demos, loves it. They're officially going to re-record the record and put out Carnivore's second record, which is um, called Retaliation. I have been misquoted very much. Um, Things that I had said and done uh, when I played with Carnivore. And I challenge anyone who reads the lyrics that have been printed on Carnivore CDs there is nothing racist or fascist or communist or anything else about it. God is Dead was a pro-God song, believe it or not. Jesus Hitler was equating fascism with Catholicism. So uh, I didn't mind being a scapegoat at the time because it was very interesting how small-minded people are, especially left-leaning people, who I feel are the 100,000 ants that attack an elephant and can take him down, because there is power in numbers. Now, Carnivore, once again, does not tour the states. The band consists right now of Louis, Peter, and Mark, and uh, they're still in that New York hardcore scene. Louis has a regular job now. So does Peter. They are, like I said, blue-collar workers all the way. And Peter just keeps pushing the lyrics harder and edgier. Really bothered Louis. There was a point where his lyrics were going too far. He felt that Peter was too extreme for even the extreme world they delved in because he wrote a song called White and Proud, and that's what he wanted to name the third Carnivore record. Trolling? No, I don't know. <laughs> Fucking trolling, dude. No, I don't know. I think there's some. I think there's some truth to that. I mean, when you call you, when you say white and proud, I mean, I think you're taking the poor white man approach a little too far. I think there's a. That's what I'm saying. Like, I can't really call the guy a troll 100. percent I mean, I do think that he enjoys getting a rise out of society, but there is a lot of truth in some of the comments. Oh, I 100 percent agree that there's a ton of bitterness inside of him. Yes. He's bitter against uh, other. I mean, there's the other groups that he had to grow up around, seeing the way they lived. He's bitter against people who don't work all the time. He's bitter against people that that don't shuck the system. He's bitter. This all of this is bitterness is in everything that he does now. His approach for white and proud, he was thinking was comedic, but that was destined for a commercial failure on every level. Do you guys agree? A hundred percent. Yeah. And Louis said this in a statement. He said, I want to stress to, to everyone that Peter was not a racist, but I felt he was going to be hurting our overall success to go in this direction. So Louis decided to leave the band after this, and that was the dissolve of Carnivore. Now, the crazy thing about that, Carnivore's success was never really big um, while they were active. They were huge in New York. They would, you know, 2,000 people would show up to watch them play, um, but they never really toured. And then about 1988, when they did stop doing shows, they didn't officially dissolve. College radio picked up a lot of these songs, Angry Neurotic Catholics, USA for USA. And they had a really popular and big following. And now people were buying these carnivore records as comedy records pretty much, you know, and, and, and part of that tongue-in-cheek and thrass thing. And what that did was that just showed that the underground still understood Peter Steele. 
With that, Peter Steele decided to start a new band in 1989, first called Sub-Zero, but eventually would be known as Type O Negative. Any final words to offer people out there, uh, the fans out there, any messages, critical final words to offer? Treat each other the way you'd like to be treated. That's all. Follow my co-hosts, Brandon Goochon, on Twitter and Instagram, at your buddy Gooch. And Jocelyn Sharp, at Jocelyn Sharp, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow us, at Rise to Offend, on Facebook and Twitter, Rise to Offend Official on Instagram. Also, listen to us every Monday on the Metal Sucks podcast on metalsucks.net. Email us comments, questions, errors we might have made, or any figure you would like us to cover. Rise to Offend at gmail.com. Support and discover the music of Peter Steele and his legendary bands Typo Negative and Carnivore. Follow the band on social media at type o negative website type o negative.net also pick up a copy of the biography on peter Steele by jeff wagner titled soul on fire available at peter next week we continue the story of peter Steele and the creation of type o negative and its impact and legacy on heavy metal thank you so much for the five-star reviews on itunes that simple review motivates us weekly and truly means the world to us. Until next week, repeat offenders, RTO Podcast signing off.